I invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll pick up our reading in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And just prior to that, let me remind those who haven't been here for the previous two weeks that we're in the third installment of our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. And the theme of that series is spiritual power in the church. Precisely what Matt just sought the Lord for in prayer on our behalf. We're going to focus our attention today on the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. And it was mentioned at the beginning of the service that um, the theme today comes from this passage. And the theme of the passage and title of the sermon is why plans change. And specifically why Paul's plans changed and we'll get to the change of plans here in just a moment, but we could actually probably put it a little more precisely than why plans change and and say that the title of the sermon should be, and the theme of the passage is, why did Paul not do what he said he would do? So it's more specific than just a little change of plans. It's actually not doing what he said he would do. One commentator, Simon Kistemacher, said, Paul does not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says in this passage, he does not make his decisions based on the flesh. And Kistemacher added, no one can accuse Paul of making plans from a worldly perspective. For the Apostle has always demonstrated his total dedication to the Lord. The Corinthians should have known that the responsibility for a charge Uh, pardon me, a change in Paul's plans rested not with him, but with God. So he just answered the question, why why did Paul's plans change? And you could put it in three letters, G-O-D. Well, from today's text, we could say that Paul's explanation, I love this, like huge theology of God, down to your daily calendar. We could say that Paul answers the question why his plans changed. The plan was, I'm going to come see you. And then I'm going to go somewhere else and I'm going to come see you again. Then I'm going to go somewhere else. He changed his itinerary to say, nope, I'm not coming twice. I'm only coming once. And he tells them why his plans changed and he gave them four reasons. And if uh, you and I had a heart tuned to heaven, we could just state the four, say amen and go home. But I love you enough not to do that. His plans changed because of God's character, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, their eternal joy, and God's agape love. That's why His plans changed. The character of God, the Gospel of Christ, joy for you forever, and God's love for you. And we'll see that in the text. Join me in verse 15 of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Hear the word of the living God. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not 
yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. Who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Verse 23, But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Chapter 2. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Well, prior to me praying, if you'll just look at that passage, verses 15 to 19, Paul says that in verse 19 especially, I'm sorry, verse 18, the faithfulness of God was the reason that he changed his plans. And if you look at verses 19 through 22, you'll see the gospel of Christ. All the promises of God are yes in him. And if you look at verse 23 and 24, it's their eternal joy is the reason He changed His plans. He's working with them for their joy. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see that His reason was embedded in agape, the love of God which He has for them. Well, with that in mind, let's pray and ask God to help us as we consider this passage. Father, it has been prayed and we now ask You once again because You're the only one who can do it. So we return again once more to Your throne room. And maybe some of us have heard other people pray, but have not yet honestly prayed ourselves alongside whomever else has voiced it. So now, once again, Lord, we're all coming to You. And I ask that Your Holy Spirit would lasso every heart. And pull every person close to the face of Christ. We all need to be changed. Some of us painfully aware of that. Some of us totally oblivious of that. Many of us have a religious routine. Lord, we ask now for the activity of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen. I summarized the basic issue. Paul had told the Corinthians that he was going to come to them, he would go to Macedonia, he would return to them, and then he would go to Jerusalem. However, he changed that itinerary not because he's duplicitous, not because he's a liar, not because he tells people what, they think, what he thinks they want to hear in the moment and then does a different thing, knowing all the while he was never going to do the first thing. That's not it. He did change his plans and he does tell them why he did so. Deducing from the material that we have in these letters, we can make sense that Paul was going to leave Ephesus around Pentecost. That's where he's writing Corinthians from. And Pentecost would be around springtime. So he's going to leave Ephesus after Pentecost, travel through Macedonia during the summer and the fall, arrive at Corinth, spend the winter there, and then ultimately go on his way to Jerusalem. That's the new itinerary. We can find that in 1 Corinthians 16, 5 and 6. So point number one is this. We're learning in this passage through the life and experience of the Apostle Paul and his relationship with the church at Corinth that one thing ought to be true of all God's people and the first thing is this. Our character should reflect God's character. If our character reflects God's character, then that's going to influence everything about us including our plans, our itinerary, our daily agenda, our calendar. Verses 15-19 to exist because Paul wanted to assure the church that his change of travel plans was not made haphazardly. It was not being inconsiderate of their needs and their desires. The principle we learn from these verses, 15-18 to especially, is that when a believer says he or she will do something, it should be taken as essentially a guarantee that you're going to do what you say you'll do. Our words ought to be reliable. Now, basic moral ethics would teach us this. Common grace spread across God's world teaches us that we should be people of our Word. But there's a much deeper reason, and I'm leaning into, in verses 15-18, to the character of God. But before we lean into that, let me just tell you a little illustration, and many of you will be provoked to think of multiplied examples in your own life. I had no shortage of examples I could share with you from my little life. But I remember one time, several years ago, Nathan Sawyer and I were in an international airport in another country, and our flight was delayed for two days. All right? Now, typically, you can find a backup flight in a few hours or, worst case scenario, the next morning. The highest on-site employee of an international airline at a major international airport wearing a power suit that was very expensive told us to our face repeatedly lies. He said to us that the plane had landed and was taxiing to the gate 48 hours before we got a flight (laughs) out of said country. And we were just talking amongst ourselves in the terminal about the situation, and a local said to us, oh, that's just cultural. Just common. That the guy who makes, presumably, the big bucks for said airline excused his dishonesty, to put it lightly, as just a cultural phenomenon. Now, 
Credibility is hard to build, isn't it? And it's really easy to lose. And if you don't believe that, go file for a few credit cards in your name and rack up the bill and don't pay it. I don't recommend that because if you steal money or forge checks or embezzle or run up a credit card bill that you don't intend to pay, then it will take you a substantial amount of time and work to rectify that situation and to rebuild a credit score. You can lose credibility in an instant. And it's going to take a long time to rebuild it. Notice how Paul grounds his reason for Christian trustworthiness in the character of God. If your mom and dad never taught you that your yes should be yes, that does not excuse you to be a liar. Verse 18 is the ground of Paul's reasoning. But as God is faithful. Our word to you is not yes and no. He doesn't say, my mom taught me good when I was in Troas, or when I was Saul of Tarsus, or when I was in the school of Gamaliel. I just learned a few things about how to behave among other people. The faithfulness of God dictates that I'm not duplicitous when I talk to you. That's verse 18. God and His character serves as the grid through which Paul and his associates navigate their plans and adjust their calendars and communicate to other people. Verse 15, I intended to come to you. Verse 16, to pass your way into Macedonia. Verse 16, and for Macedonia to come back to you. Verse 17, but I was not vacillating when I intended to do this. Do I make my plans according to the flesh? The world? The system and the thinking of this evil world regime? Is that how I make my decisions? Verse 17, is it true that with me you get double speak? Yes, yes, no, no. Is that my character? Do you get the two at the same time? Verse 18, he takes the spotlight totally off himself. He's not virtue signaling. He's saying, God is faithful. Therefore, my word is not yes and no. Paul's initial plan, I love this, shows the importance of the local church and the grand purposes of God to expand the kingdom for which we prayed in our prayer time earlier. I want to go through you to Macedonia. I want to go to you and by you back to Jerusalem. Do you see the occasion Paul used to draw attention to the character of God? And in a moment, to the Gospel of Jesus Christ was his daily calendar. Paul's basically saying this, look, my day-to-day plans are governed by God's character, His faithfulness, and Christ's cross, which will be our second consideration. Now I just want to ask you, is your theology that practical? So many times we hear the charge, and we feel the sting of the charge because it doesn't seem like church relates to life. And this does feel sometimes like an anomaly to real life. But what Paul is saying is there's nothing more practical for us than God. Is your theology that nitty-gritty, that practical, that whatever application you use on your gadget to keep up with your daily calendar, or if you've got a big kind of day planner, or a wall calendar, or however you make your plans that are yours to make, I'm not talking about your 8-5 to job that's made for you, I'm just saying the plans you get to negotiate, navigate, what you do, when you do it, why you do it, is your theology this practical? 
that your day-to-day plans are governed by God's own faithfulness in Christ's cross. I don't want to overlook that in verse 15, Paul was confident to his bones that wherever he went, God's people would be blessed. You see that in verse 15? If I get to come to you two times, you get two blessings. He was certain that if he did show up, blessing would accompany. That's not being prideful, that's being Christian. As an apostle, no doubt, Paul expected that the Holy Spirit would use him to bless the churches of Christ. But as a Christian, you ought to expect the very same thing. One commentator, Paul Barnett, said of this little phrase, double blessing, Paul confidently and objectively believed that his visits would bring spiritual benefit to the churches. What a way to live. What a way to live. Paul didn't just think this way if he happened to show up at Corinth. Listen to what he wrote to the Roman Christians. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. And then closing that letter, that's the beginning of Romans, in chapter 15, Paul adds again, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Is that the effect you and I are having on people when we show up places? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's going to say to us in just a few chapters that we are an ambassador of Christ. Wherever we go, that's the nameplate we wear. That's the job description we have. This passage reminds me of another person who everywhere he went was confident that he would bring God's blessing with him. The King James translates in the Gospel of John chapter 4 that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Some of you are familiar with the passage of what we call the woman at the well. And Jesus said, hey, we need to go over here to this place, but I must need go through Samaria, which was the long way around. And it was the people that the Jews weren't accustomed to associate with. Those Samaritans, those half-breeds, those godless people. Jesus lived to display the faithfulness of God and it governed how He lived His life, where He went, what He did. Including when and where He traveled. Astonishingly, not only did Jesus seek to bring a blessing to that woman at that well in Samaria, and therefore He purposed to go that direction and to her whole city, not only did He day-to-day travel that way, but our Lord Jesus is some kind of wonderful. He lived in absolute wholehearted surrender to His Father's purpose. It's precisely what led Jesus to the cross of Christ. That was the biggest appointment on His calendar from the time He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And every single day, He stalked down the cross of Christ. He hunted the cross. He put the cross in His crosshairs and He went purposefully toward Jerusalem. The Gospel writers writers tell us on repeat that He set His face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He went there on purpose. And why did He go? To show off the faithfulness of God's character. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedient to whom? God. And this is what Paul is basically saying. I follow the Savior who lived moment by moment to display the faithfulness of God. And if I follow Jesus, 
I don't have another option. Everything I do is governed by the character of God and His faithfulness. Which leads right into the second point. It's verses 19 to 22 that our character, therefore, obviously, our plans should adorn the gospel of Christ, should show off the beauty and the brilliance of God's love to us in Jesus. Adorn the gospel of Christ. And we don't usually think of our, I don't at least, don't usually think of my daily schedule. Uh, my calendar tomorrow says change the air filters. Okay? I typically don't look at my calendar and see notes like that and think, man, what a way to adorn the Gospel of Christ. But let's look at Paul's approach to his schedule and his plans. When he says in verse 19, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Paul pulls out the big guns once again to defend his reason for changing his itinerary and not coming to Corinth. This time, instead of drawing attention, verse 18, to the faithfulness of God, he draws attention to verse 20, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and verse 22, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the culmination of receiving the Gospel. In verses 19 and 20, we find a potent dose of biblical Christology. You want to know who Jesus is? Meditate until your heart is on fire on verses 19 and 20. In two verses, Paul asserts that when he was in Corinth, they know that he proclaimed, he heralded, he preached the person of Christ Jesus. Do you see the nuance in his language in verse 19? For the Son of God... Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no. He didn't come and give them a formula. He came and gave them heaven's favorite. Jesus. He preached to them the person of Christ, the man. His humanity. Jesus, His given name by the angels to Joseph prior to His birth. That He is the God-man. Jesus, Jesus is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament rendering of the Hebrew. God is our salvation. That's what His name means. Jesus. That's who we preached. Who also, verse 19, is divine. The Son of God. He further claims that this Jesus who is both one and the same fully human and fully divine, is without contradiction. He is true. He's not yes and no. He's not duplicitous. A lot of people use the name Jesus. I'm not talking about that one and that one. I'm not talking about what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. Oh, when Jesus said, many people will say, there's the Christ. No, there He is. No, He's over there. Don't follow all those Jesuses. I'm preaching to you the true Jesus. The question has never been, do you follow Jesus? The question has always been, which Jesus do you follow? In verse 19, Paul says, my Jesus is not yes and no. My Jesus is yes. Therefore, Christian character should also be trustworthy. How can you follow a Jesus who is true and be a liar? For Christ followers, our Word, that's what Paul says he gave to them, 
is to run far deeper than the worldly code of ethics. We don't seek to refrain from lying because people will think bad of us. Christians seek to be truthful because we want to display the beauty of Jesus. It's not about us, it's about Him, which is why Jesus said to us, let your statement be, Matthew 5.37, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything, Jesus said, beyond these, is of evil. Jesus calls it evil to say one thing and do another thing. So Paul is attacking the problem head on. You think I was just lying to you? There's a bigger problem if that's the case. The problem is I'm evil. I'm not following Christ at all. If I can tell you I'm going to come see you and I don't do it. That's because it reflects poorly on the character of God and the Gospel of Christ. We hear little adages that do have a tremendous element of truth in them. Adages like, you are the only Bible that a lot of people will ever read. It's a very convicting way to look at our life. Well, that may be a sad indictment on many of us, but it actually is often the case, isn't it? And Paul even tells the church at Corinth in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 3, you are a living epistle. God wrote His truth on your heart. And what Paul's saying to them is, I'm not telling you to do something that I myself am am unwilling to follow. Paul is not a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do preacher. He's a come-follow-my-example-as-I-follow-Christ apostle. It appears that some were connecting dots between Paul's changed plans and the message that he had preached. It works like this. It seems that in Corinth, there were some people who were saying stuff like this to the church. If you can't trust Him in the little things, then how do you know what He's saying is totally true in the bigger stuff? How do you know that His doctrine is right if He's lying to you about when He's going to come to town? You see, if Paul was not trustworthy to do what he said he would do, then how could they trust anything else that he ever said to them, including in his preaching? That's what's going on, and that's why Paul draws the attention to the Gospel. Charles Simeon said, may it never be said of us, May it never be said of us that they glorify God by their faith, but they dishonor Him by their works. The promises are given not merely to save, but also to sanctify our souls. When you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, Paul's example here, what grid do you use to determine when that's permissible? Paul loads up in answer to that question 18 months worth of sermon notes. That's how long he was at the church at Corinth. For a year and a half, he preached to them Lord's Day after Lord's Day. No doubt visiting many times in between the Lord's Days in the homes and with the people and commending the beauty and sufficiency of Christ to them. And in one sentence, Paul says, when I preached Jesus among you, and when I wrote and came back and visited and told you that I was going to come see you again, You can guarantee that my word is is true when I proclaim Jesus because I'm a man whose whole character has been shaped by the Gospel of Christ. Man, oh, to live like this. One commentator said the Corinthians should know that Paul is honest and true in his word. Therefore, as he is dependable in preaching the Gospel, So he is trustworthy 
in making known all of his plans, including travel. Another said, from Paul's viewpoint, all his words, whether preaching Christ or in ordinary conversation, are spoken, he knows, in the presence of God. That's what he says later. I call God as my witness. And then a third commentator says, it's inseparable It is the inseparable property of divine grace to make us jealous for the honor of God and studious to promote it in the utmost of our power, meaning everything we ever say and everything we ever do is to reflect the character of God and the beauty of His Gospel love. This is what Paul could say in the previous passage. I have a clean conscience. I'm the same man everywhere I go. No matter who I'm around, I know that I'm living before the face of God. Now verse 20, the big theology of the Gospel, for as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. What a lot of multi-directional prepositions going on. Paul is asserting in verse 20 that every promise God has ever made concerning the work of the Messiah, concerning the redemption of fallen mankind, concerning the everlasting joy of those who are favorably related to God, concerning the eradication of our sin, concerning the forgiveness that must be applied to us if we are to ever be rightly related to God concerning the everlasting enjoyment of God in His presence. Every single promise God has ever made to His people is positively accomplished in Jesus. And the only way you can get access to any of the promises, let alone all of them, is for you to be found in the one locale where all God's promises are Amen. You must belong to Jesus if you would have access to any of God's promises. He accomplished them. They are yes in Him. He is true. He is God's ultimate yes to the universe. When God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He confirmed to the far off galaxies, to all the angelic beings, to Satan, to all of his minions, and to the host of the sea of endless humanity that has ever or will ever be born, that every promise He's ever made is true. Jesus tells us in John 14, He is the truth. Revelation 3 says, Jesus' name is He that is true. Revelation 14 calls Jesus the Amen, the faithful and true witness. When you and I are finally made to see that every glorious promise that God has ever made to fallen men, people like you and me, who without Christ are headed to a Christless eternity, the devil's hell, when you and I are made to see that every promise that God has ever made to fallen men is abundantly available to us in Christ Jesus, you will throw yourselves into the arms of Christ for mercy. You will flee to Him for forgiveness and you will not feel like you gave up anything to gain everything. That's what Paul is saying. Not only does he indicate that God, uh, Jesus is God's yes to every pom- promise, but he says in this little verse, therefore through Jesus we shout our hearty amen to the glory of God. 
Amen essentially means yes. I agree. Jesus is the exclamation point of everything God has ever said. I cast my entire lot on Christ. Amen. Absolutely love the way an old commentator, you got to listen carefully and I'll read it deliberately, best I can, had to say about these verses. The truth asserted is that Christ, the Son of God, had not been manifested among them or experienced by them to be unsatisfying or uncertain when Paul had previously preached to them. But they knew that in Christ was yea, yes. That is, He was simple truth. In Him, in Christ, was all truth. He proved Himself to be all that was affirmed of Him. He was and continued to be all they had been led to expect. Do you know what every believer finds? We find ourselves astonished all over again. And it feels like we get reconverted. Because in kind of my own little limited ability to understand the great works of God and to articulate my experiences with Jesus, as I read the Word, I find it to be something like this. How could I not have known that He was this wonderful and have actually been saved to begin with? And so it feels like a reconversion over and over and over. The more you track down the gold and rubies and diamonds that are laid up for us in Christ. All the promises that are in Jesus. When you find your grubby hands on a new treasure trove of the wonder of God for you in Jesus, it feels like you're reborn. And instead of thinking you weren't a Christian, Every time your hands find themselves full again of His fullness, it's actually proof positive that you are one. Because God has promised to continue to dispense to you all of His grace in Christ for all eternity. So the realities that you find in Him to be precious and soul-nourishing and edifying and spirit-enlivening and kingdom-advancing is evidence that God's actually doing the work in you that He promised to do. So Paul says, He's true and my amen through Him to God, to His glory, is what I live my life by. I grew up in some charismatic circles and heard a lot about praying for anointing. I saw some experiences where it was said to have been done and I've heard plenty of prayers in my less charismatic circles even this morning for anointing on my own preaching and ministry and I certainly pray for that I prayed for that myself I heard somebody else pray for that in a in a private moment but Paul knows nothing about spot anointing he didn't want anointing on this little minute of his life that little minute of his life this ministry opportunity. When he says, Chrysos, that God anoints you, verse 21, He establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us. God did that. He's talking about the Holy Spirit saturating all of our life. Now it's a fine thing to pray that God would anoint us in a moment, but not spot anoint us. 
Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that God intends to anoint someone's entire life. All of their person, from their head to their toes, inside and out. Their motivations, their plans, their intentions. And the anointing that Christians receive, you just keep reading the passage, is nothing less than God giving you the seal of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that He's going to save you forever. You can see it again in verse 22. God who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Now, in verse 21 and 22, I trust that you can see it without me having to labor it. The triune God is at work there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all conspiring together for your everlasting redemption. Proving that He's going to save you forever. Not by giving you something, but by giving you someone, namely the Holy Spirit, God Himself, as the pledge. It's the word deposit, the down payment, the guarantee that He's going to do forever what He promised to do for any who would flee to Christ. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. The Holy Spirit who is given to those who believe the Gospel as a pledge of our inheritance. In Romans 8, Paul says very clearly, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Him. See what Paul's just done? Verse 18, God is faithful, and I'm seeking to live my whole life to reflect His character. I don't say yes and no. God is true. I want my life to reflect who He is. And the Gospel. Every promise is yes in Jesus. The triune God has conspired for my redemption, and I make all my plans under the light of who Jesus is and how He loves me. What a way to live your life! Number three, not only God's character and the Gospel of Christ shaping Paul's character and his plans and his itinerary, we find in verses 23 and 24 that our souls should be wide open to God to become a channel to serve the eternal joy of others. Why didn't Paul go to Corinth? God's character, the Gospel of Jesus, and their joy. You see it in verse 23, I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Verse 24, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. I didn't come to you so that you could get joy. How does that work, Paul? He wasn't hesitant to call in verse 23, God as His witness. As the motivation for changing His plans. That means that Paul knew that he was saying, God is able to take my life if I'm lying to you about this. Now some people speak very tritely about that. And they swear to God. Don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus had something to say about that in Matthew chapter 5. Don't make an oath by heaven. Don't make an oath by the throne of God. Just let your yes be yes. And what Paul's doing here, with Jesus' words fully in view, in fact, I think he wrote the previous sentences, yes, yes, no, no, based on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which was well-trodden territory and knowledge for the apostles, and Paul no doubt would have known that Jesus taught that statement. And when Paul says, I call God as witness to my soul, he's not saying it so that they'll think that he's really serious. He's saying it because he knows that he's living his life in the presence of God and that he's blood earnest about what he's saying. And as I said, God, 
he knew was able to take his life if he would be speaking a lie to them. The reason he didn't, did not come, let me not use conjunctions so that I can be heard. The reason he did not come to Corinth was because he wanted them to be full of joy. How does that work? Had he come, he says he would have had to come with a rod. So in verse 23, to spare them, he opted to go a different direction. This does not mean that he was avoiding confrontation. He's going to tell us in just a few verses that he wrote to them in anguish, in affliction, with many tears. He's not avoiding confrontation. He's using a medium that he hopes and prays will be aided by the Holy Spirit to cultivate their hearts. He's letting the letter be the rod that's stained with his tears. I imagine as they read that parchment, they saw the blotched ink all over it. He's not avoiding confrontation. He was prayerfully giving the Holy Spirit time to work in them so that by the time He did come, He would find them more conformed to the image of Jesus. He wasn't trying to micromanage their faith. Somebody prayed earlier today about manipulation. I can't remember who did, and I obviously don't know why you did. But man, that fits this passage. Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not being heavy-handed for you. I'm not trying to legislate your morality. I'm not lording over your faith. Rather, verse 24, I'm working with you for your joy. Now I'm going to tell you which elder said this, but uh, I'll tell you at the end because I like to give you an opportunity to listen and uh, you play a little game called Guess Which Pastor. One pastor reading a commentary on this passage sent me these few sentences. Dude. <laughs> Alright, maybe you already got your guesses. The Apostle Paul leveraged all he had. His whole life. All his words for them. So that they would experience more of the bottomless grace of Christ. This elder goes on, their benefit was where his crosshairs of his sniper scope was lined up. Here's what's crazy, last line, their benefit was also his benefit. He sought to maximize his own joy by being an instrument for others to maximize their joy. My man was doing joy work. Now, you can, we can play name that elder, but we'll do it silently. That was Jim. Yeah, you all got it right. When I've traveled recently, I've tried to avoid answering the question, say I'm sitting next to somebody on a plane and they say, what do you do? Where do you work? What do you do for a living? I've tried to avoid saying I'm a pastor. Because it just like totally changes the conversation. And I don't know if I'm getting the real person or the perception they want me to get or whatever. So in, in order to try to impede that, I often introduce myself to my seatmate on a plane as uh, I'm an eternal hedonism advocate. 
And that starts a really good conversation. Or, I deal in the distribution of eternal delight. And that starts a good conversation. Or sometimes I just say, I, I work in my father's business. And that starts a good conversation. You see the connections Paul's making in verse 24? He changed his plans. I'm not coming two times. Instead, I'm going to write you a letter and I'm going to come one time. And here's my motivation. It's the pattern of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like His entire motivation was to change His plans and step out of eternal bliss and come to this sin-torn world and become the man of sorrows and bear all kinds of heartache for the glorious and everlasting good of His people so that we could forever dip the thimble of our life into the ocean of God's own joy and spill over for endless eternities with ever-increasing delight with God in God. Just like Jesus changed His plans, if you will. Don't charge me with heresy. All right, He didn't change any plan. Just like Jesus, I too am laboring to make you happy forever. His motive was to work with them for their joy. That's why He didn't come twice. And then, the last but not least, oh my goodness, God's character shapes my character. Just as He's faithful, I seek to be faithful. God's Gospel shapes the way I make my plans. Just like every promise is yes in Jesus and Jesus is not duplicitous, yes and no, I'm yes when I say yes. And just like I'm working with you for your everlasting joy, look where he ends. Chapter 2, verses 1-4. through All the commentaries I consulted and every outline I looked at from any conservative, from any era, from any continent agrees that the theme continues through the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1-4. through our character, which obviously influences our planning, our itineraries, everything else about us, should be driven by God's love for God's people. This is what drove Paul's life. He loved other people with God's love. Instead of coming with a rod, Verse 1, I didn't want to come in sorrow again. Instead of coming with a rod, Paul instead wrote to them. Verse 3, this is the very thing I wrote to you. And what he means at the end of verse 3 is not, let's all pretend to be happy because I don't like it when people are sad. Rather, he means their obedience to the things that he wrote to them were necessary to their true happiness and His as well. Now let me just say in the most simplified terms, I know how to say what's happening in verses 1-3, to and then let me tell you the reason in verse 4 and we'll be done. The simplest way I know how to say verse 3 is this. I cannot be happy in Christ if you're not walking with Jesus. It's not 
I don't want to make you sad so that I won't be sad. And it's not, I want you to be happy so I can be happy. It's, unless you give attention to what I wrote to you, which I think in large part has to do with the next passage, forgiving the incestuous man who repented and restoring him to the fellowship of the church who had been excommunicated in 1 Corinthians 1. That's, that's the very next thing he talks about. Unless you obey Christ fully and extend forgiveness to truly repentant people, that's hard, that's hard work. Forgiveness is, is hard work. But it only happens on the basis of genuine repentance. Paul minces no words about that. Paul's saying, unless you obey Jesus fully, I can't be happy. Do you feel like that? About anybody else on planet earth? Let alone a whole local church. Their obedience to the things that he wrote to them were necessary to their happiness and his as well. In short, Paul could not be fully joyful if the church as a whole was not walking with Jesus. I think this is what Paul meant later in 2 Corinthians at the end, chapter 11, where he says, there is daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul was joyful in the Lord. He says a lot about that. But daily pressure of concern for all the churches? What's the main reason Paul wrote such a heavy letter to them instead of going to see them? Why did he write, as he says, in much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears? That's a hard letter to write. I've had to write a few of those. The vast majority of them I just never sent. Why did he pen such a sorrowful letter? Why did Paul write with that spirit instead of coming to see them? Verse 4, not so that you would be made sorrowful. Not my goal. I'm not guilting you. I'm not trying to throw stones at you. Not so that you'd be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. What a brother in the Lord. I went to the adage chest earlier. And let me go back to it again. The old, well-trodden one. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Paul loved these people. They weren't a project for him to fix. They were people whom he loved. He knew that Christ had died for them. What a brother in the Lord. What a father in the faith. This man could not be happy unless his spiritual children were walking in the faith because he loved them with Christ's own love. Verse 4, so that you would know the agape which I have for you. That's the word he uses there. So that you would know that the love that I have for you didn't originate from me. It's not derivative of Paul. God's agape love coming to me through the cross of Christ, flowing through me for you. It's God loving you through me. I want you to be happy because Jesus died to make you glad in God forever. And until you're obedient to Jesus, let's not pretend like anybody's happy. Now tell me, do you love anybody like that? More to the point, 
Do you love a whole local church like that? Is it cool with you if anybody comes short of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Are you doing anything in any measure in any way that maybe only God knows, which is perfectly fine, to see to it that anybody else is complete in Christ? Are you offering Jesus to somebody in hopes that they'll be built up in Jesus? This is a holy discontentment. This is a man whose character has been so shaped by the Gospel. A man through whom Christ's love so powerfully flows and pours out into the lives of others. And may the Lord cause a true revival of such agape love among the saints in our own day, right here in this own little church. So, I have this to close with. Dust off your day planner. Look at your upcoming itinerary. Think about the way you live. Think about what you do. Think about where you go. All your negotiable time. Not liquidable income, liquidable time. Why you do what you do, I want you to think about it. And at the end of the day, can we say with the Apostle Paul that we have been so captivated by Jesus Christ and God's love for us in Him that our character is formed around the faithfulness of God. That our character is shaped by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That our aim in life is to make others as happy in God as saved sinners can be. And that our motivation in dealing with other Christians, especially when they're not living obediently, our motivation is God's agape love for them flowing through us. That's the way this passage breaks down. And I love that Paul doesn't just say, oh yeah, I had a change of plans, period. Don't you love that? This is what it looks like for theology to meet practice. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You so much that You are who You are. That in Jesus, You have done what You have done. That through the cross and the resurrection, You offer joy forevermore. And that You purpose to love us through other people. Lord, allow our lives to be so shaped. Shaped by Your character. Shaped by the Gospel. Motivated by seeking to make others happy in You. And driven by Your own love for Your people. Lord, cause us to be like that. And for any who are outside of Christ, who don't know that all Your promises are yes in Jesus, oh God, how we ask that they would turn from their sin and trust in the risen Jesus for the fulfillment of all Your promises, including eternal life. Lord, help us to be the kind of people whose lives are dominated by God like we see in the Apostle Paul. We ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.